We have certainly seen in the last 25 years, and it, it existed long before, but white nationalism really coalesced as a movement. And we shouldn't kid ourselves, this isn't new. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, hate on the rise. Jonathan Greenblatt, who you just heard, runs the Anti-Defamation League. He says the number of hate crimes such as harassment, vandalism, and violence have jumped over the last two years. He's one of today's featured speakers. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Hate groups are growing and the number of hate-fueled incidents is spiking in America. The latest incident was in Charlottesville, Virginia. White nationalists violently clashed with anti-fascist groups and other protesters in a city park. A woman was killed and others injured when a car plowed into a group of protesters. In the first month after Donald Trump won the presidency, the Southern Poverty Law Center cataloged more than 1,000 acts of intimidation and hate. And in the first quarter of 2017, the number of anti-Semitic incidents increased almost 90% over the same period in 2016. That's according to Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League. He joined Heidi Byrick, who leads the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, and Wajahat Ali, a New York Times opinion writer, for a discussion about hate. They were on stage in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Deputy Editor of The Atlantic, Matt Thompson, moderated the discussion. Here's Thompson. Where are we now in the arc of uh, extremism and hatred? Heidi? Well, I would say that we're not as bad off as we were in the 50s. (laughs) You know, the country has uh, had a, obviously white supremacists from its founding Mm -hmm. until the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Immigration Act in the 1960s. There's just no question about that. So as bad as things are today, it doesn't compare to uh, that period. That said, the last maybe decade and a half have seen increasing numbers of hate groups, anti-government extremists, a breaching of the lines of civility, I think, on sort of racial discourse, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim thinking, anti-immigrant, you name it, right? So we could say that what's been going on lately has been a backlash against the Obama years, although I I would argue it goes back a little bit further than that. But regardless, we have backslid, at least for those of us who believe in equity and fairness and civil rights, this is not a good time. So what are the indicators, uh, and Waj, I'm I'm curious, what do you look to to sort of determine as a barometer of uh, how Haiti are we? um, The Haitiness? Yeah, the Haitiness factor. I mean, well, there was the travel ban dropped like it was hot yesterday, 8 p.m. Eastern time. You guys, yeah? Muslim ban? No? Too soon? Yeah. Uh, Always. So that's a nice little uh, weightiness to the hate. I think that tilted it to the right. Uh, and you have, I mean, we would backtrack it, right? Like you said, don't talk about Trump. But Trump, which I have to talk about Trump, uh, as the commander in chief, uh, uses the pulpit uh, of the, and the weight of the office to tweet hate, mainstream hate. And the question then should be is that yes, we know that. Trump goes against Muslims, and Trump uh, not really a fan of African Americans because his pitch to black uh, Americans was, uh, I mean, this is the worst time 
right? Ever, 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 right. you know, discounting something called slavery um, and reconstruction and lynching and all that stuff, but that's okay, nuances. He's uh, young to the job, he'll learn. Um, and then his attacks on 51% of the population, women. Uh, so having ovaries is apparently a crime now as well. Um, but look, I use dark humor. It's going to be like this for the entire hour, dark humor, all right? Or otherwise, we're going to punch ourselves in the face and we're going to cry and like eat Cheetos because uh, it's too depressing otherwise. But it is a stunning moment in American history where we were told that the election of Barack Hussein Obama, who is a Muslim, would be, it's, you know, yeah, yeah, Kenyan. Oh, sorry, my bad. Was, we have flown over hate. We live in a post-racial society. It's all good now. Proof is in the pudding. Eight years of Barack Hussein Obama. And people of color and minorities are like, wait for it. Wait for it. That train is never late. And what's been happening pre-Obama, especially during Obama, who's one of the many examples of the triggers of what we've witnessed, and, and I'll take it to what's happening right now, and you mentioned white supremacy, and white supremacy is a hell of a drug. And when we talk about white supremacy, it's very important. And I'm going to speak for Heidi here for a second, because I like to mansplain also, because <laughs> so does Donald Trump. Uh, we're not against white people. It's not about white people are evil. It's the ideology of supremacy and a systemic institution of supremacy and exclusion which has gone against the Irish, because the Irish were not considered white. Jews, because the Jews were not considered white. Native Americans, African Americans, and now I think tag your it, Italians, it's the Muslims, right? And the thing I'll say is this, and this is what we have to, we have to really focus on this, because this is gonna be the problem for the next 10, 20, 30 years. If you look at the studies, and finally enough studies have come out where people say, oh yes, we understand. Trump's base, why did you vote for Trump? Because, us versus them. Zero-sum game. This is no longer my country. This is no longer the America I grew up with. This is no longer my father's America. What does that mean? They are coming here. Who's they? The Mexicans, the undocumented, the ones with the ovaries, the Muslims. They are taking your job. They are compromising your security. So I'm going to make you feel safe and give you the illusion of safety and security by protecting you against them. And that's literally what we're dealing with right now is a remake of American history. I want to just end on this point. This is a remake. We've seen patterns of this, especially if you're looking at the Islamophobia right now. If you replace, and I can show you the research afterwards, if you replace what Donald Trump has said about Muslims and Islam in America in the past two years, you take a DeLorean, 80s pop culture reference, anyone? Back to the future? Of course. 1930s America, don't you have to go across the Atlantic? And, I, and we've done the research. Replace Muslim with Jew. Mainstream hate mongering against Jews in the 30s and 40s. Replace Muslim and what they say about Islam. A threat, a fifth column, they'll never integrate. There's a, there's a Muslim plan, Sharia. Exact same talking points of the best-selling book in 1949, American Freedom and Catholic Power, which then was re-released in 1959, became a best-selling book, New York Times bestseller, when a young man by the name of JFK was ascending. You replace Muslim with Catholic, the exact same talking points. So we're witnessing a remake, and we're witnessing either the death march or the death rattle of white supremacy in America. And this is what we have to deal with. You did not prepare that. You did not prepare that line, did I you? I didn't, man. This was me off the cuff. <laughs> right, impromptu. And so, by the way, if you're a journalist covering this event, Watch Just Made News, a Muslim speaker at the Aspen Ideas Festival, replace Muslims with Jews and Catholics. Yes. Correct? Is that, that's what I heard. That's how Sharia works. <laughs> man. 
Man. Too soon? Too soon? Haters are influential, I gotta say. I don't know. I don't know. But, but this year in New Orleans, we saw monuments to heroes of the Confederacy coming down. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of indicators going a lot of different directions um, for what the norms of the country are. And, and Jonathan, I'm curious, what do you look to as the barometers for in the long arc of whatever um, uh, gray uh, trajectory we are sure, on? Sure. So, uh, so first of all, thank you. I mean, I think it's brave of everybody to show up yeah. at 9 a.m. for a talk on hate when there's so many other choices. But I Masochistic think, even. But I think it's an indication of the degree of concern that's out there right. because it's real. And unfortunately, I don't agree with what Lodge just said, even though it's a good soundbite about the death rattle of white supremacy. In fact, I don't think it's going away. I said death march, death rattle or death It could be either. No, really. So the fact of the matter is what Heidi said is right, that the country was founded in some degree with slavery as a, as a cornerstone. And although we've had really important legislative accomplishments, we have certainly seen in the last 25 years, and it, it existed long before, but white nationalism really coalesced as a movement. And we shouldn't kid ourselves. This isn't new. And so while there's a lot of concern about the alt-right today, and there should be, I'll remind us that in 1995 in Oklahoma City, Timothy McVeigh, a white nationalist, an anti-government activist, murdered about 168 people and injured upwards of 700, including dozens and dozens of children at the, when he bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City. So we should keep in mind that white nationalism and this awful rhetoric has consequences. And when Timothy McVeigh did that, remember, it was after years of com- crazy conspiracy theories about black helicopters and you know, uh, government stormtroopers who were going to raid uh, you know, different places. And there was this conspiracy in the rural South and in the Midwest about this. It was crazy then, and it's crazy now. But it has consequences. So at the ADL, we track hate crimes, and we deal with this all over the country. And in particular, we monitor anti-Semitism, both in terms of attitudes and incidences. So let me give you some data to, start, to go to where you started. So we've been looking at attitudes since the anti-Semitic attitudes since the 1960s. And I can report that in our most recent survey, we do these uh, every few years, anti-Semitic attitudes in the US were, di- were at about 14%. Mm. That means 14% of the population demonstrates a- classic anti-Semitic attitudes. This is way down from where we started doing this in 1964, when the number was about 30%. But we also track incidences. We have 27 offices across the United States. And often, we're the first call that gets made when someone suffers a hate crime or a bias incident. And so in our annual survey of anti-Semitic incidences, which we released in April, we saw an increase in 2016 of about 34% over 2015, a 34% increase in acts of harassment, Vandalism and violence. And where is that for in the uh, the record of how long you've been tracking these incidents? Where does that sit? Where does that sit vis-a-vis like how high is it? Yeah. Uh, well, I can tell you, I can't tell you exactly in terms of the raw numbers. It's it's close to it's sixteen hundred and change. Mm. But we did something this year we've never done before, Matt, because we've been so concerned about the anti-Semitic rhetoric. We've been so concerned about the surge of hate we're seeing online. We've been so concerned about the anecdotes that we're hearing from all over the country, is this year we said, let's look at the first quarter of this year. Let's not wait a whole year. I want to know right now what's happening. 
So in the first quarter of this, we released data for the first quarter of 2017. And shockingly, unfortunately, maybe not surprisingly, the anti-Semitic instances had increased almost 90% over the first quarter of 2016. And more specifically, bullying incidents, harassment incidents, vandalism and such in schools, we had nearly as many incidences in the first quarter of this year as in all of 2016. So to those of you who think, and I don't really care how you vote, I don't, because hate isn't a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. We can talk about the causal factors, I'm sure we're going to, but the data tells us that we have a problem, and the data tells us that it is time to do something about it. I, I do care how you vote, and I will gladly tell you that it is right now a more of a Republican thing. Can I just add something to Jonathan's point about the violence? You know, most people don't realize how much domestic terrorism there is out there coming from white supremacists and anti-government crazies like the McVeighs of the world. But I can just tell you the Law Center did a study looking at, you know, every single domestic terrorist attack we could count uh, during the last maybe six years of the Obama administration. There was an attempted plot or an actual carried out attack every 34 days in the United States. So this is a really serious thing. And just in the last... What, month and a half we had the guy who was reading the neo-Nazi website, Daily Stormer, go to New York to kill black people. Right. With the sword. And That's he killed right. the black like man the with the sword. The student at Bowie, uh, in yep. Bowie in Maryland attacked. We had this crazy cell of neo-Nazis in Florida that had bomb-making components that were going to attack synagogues. So the levels of violence, I, I don't think we always put it together because the way the news media reports, it's like, here's something that happened in Tampa. Oh, the Portland attack. Let's not forget that on the train. Something in Portland, something here, something there. When it's, when it's Muslim, extremist Muslims doing the attacks, there's like a coherent narrative to it, right? Like they're all of a piece. When it's white supremacists, it's like they're all separate incidents. But the violence is actually serious. And that's not even counting the hate crimes, which are a problem just on a daily, in the daily lives of so many people in the United Absolutely States. Right. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Hate on the Rise. The conversation held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival features Heidi Byrick, Wajahat Ali, Jonathan Greenblatt, and Matt Thompson. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Google Play, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's journalist Matt Thompson. Heidi, I'm particularly curious. So you run the Intelligence Center, the Intelligence Project at, at the Center Poverty Law Center, and one of the things that you all do is sort of uh, call, identify lists of, of folks who you identify as hate groups. Um, and I'm really curious how you make that determination because it's very, it's a very fraught subject. The Southern Poverty Law Center has been criticized by, um, among others, um, Majid Nawaz, who said that, quote, they put a target, he told the, an Atlantic reporter, quote, they put a target on my head because of being put on one of the SPLC's lists. And so I'm really curious how you make that determination. Yeah, well, the list that we get criticized for, for the most part, is the hate group list, which is something that didn't involve uh, Nawaz. Uh, and the, most of the criticism we've been getting lately have come from anti-LGBT groups. Mm-hmm. 
anti-Muslim groups, anti-immigrant groups. And their, their main complaint, like for example, Liberty Council, this is an anti-LGBT group, is that we don't, uh, you know, we are not out calling for violence against people. We're sort of asserting our rights towards a particular group. And we, we don't list groups on the basis of whether they're violent or not. We look at their ideology, and we try to decide, is that ideology hateful? In the case of Liberty Council, one of the reasons we list them is that they argue for the criminalization of homosexuals. In other words, people who are in gay relationships should be put in jail for engaging in gay sex, for example. Gay people are deviant, perverted. You know, I could go on with this sort of uh, shaming. And to us, um, although these critics wouldn't agree, to us that's no different than saying about black people, for example, that they're more criminal, they're more sexually deviant, they, they engage in you know, violent hate crimes against white people, they aren't capable of civilization, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, until 1997, it was official policy of the United States, legal policy of the United States, that, that gays could be... Oh, you are absolutely right, until 2003, right, until the Lawrence decision. I don't think that makes it right. I still consider it hateful. And a lot of the groups that we list are still are, are arguing to recriminalize sex in other countries or funding efforts to do that. So, you know, sodomy laws were definitely on the books. 2003, they were overturned in the United States. But I frankly can't find anything more hateful than to throw somebody in jail for consensual sex. I mean, that's even worse than a neo-Nazi in many ways. They want the power of the government to actually exploit people. So it is our definition, and you know, obviously people have the right to criticize us for how we do this, but that's how we list groups. Um, of course, many, many of them are also violent. Can I say something here? So the ADL, for over 100 years, has been a fierce and ferocious defender of the First Amendment. So we deeply believe in the rights and privileges that are bestowed to us, including freedom of speech. But freedom of speech is not freedom to slander. And freedom of expression is not freedom to incite violence. So we should be, in the same way that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, claim a protection by the First Amendment, you can't incite violence or intimidate or threaten individuals on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, national origin, level of ability. You can't do that and claim to cloak yourself in freedom of speech. Now, I'll also just say, and then, uh, and then stop, I, I believe, you know, there was a conversation on this stage yesterday about issues on campus. And I think we need to challenge ourselves to hear hateful ideas. We need to challenge ourselves and not be afraid to engage with people whose ideas we don't like. So I don't believe in safe spaces where we squash free speech. The best response to bad speech is better speech. But that doesn't mean we should allow people to be targeted, right, for who they are or where they're from or who they love. So what happens uh, when that hateful speech comes from the commander-in-chief? What happens when, and I agree with yeah. you, what happens with, when extremism, and we allow extremist ideology and rhetoric because we live in a free society, becomes mainstreamed? What happens when we as a society decide we are going to actively give a platform to the KKK? Yeah. We're gonna invite them to speak on MSNBC and CNN. So what we did before, back in the day, was KKK exist, they have a right to their rallies, we mock them and make fun of them, that's the KKK, children do not be like the KKK. No one says, the KKK, that's a rallying cry, let's invest time and cover the KKK rallies. Yeah. Tell us, oh KKK member, your white supremacist ideology, and let's spend 50 minutes debating it. 
And what's happening now, and we did the research on this, and I'll quickly tell you the research of how this got mainstreamed. For the Center for American Progress in 2011, they asked me to identify where the hell are these talking points coming from? This is right before Muslim Obama was running for president again. And that Muslimy slander was still affecting him. You guys remember that? So they said, President Obama's a Muslim. Sharia is a threat to America. Traditional Islam is radical Islam. Radical Muslim Brotherhood has infiltrated the White House. Who here has heard this, by the way? Okay, in 2011, the 10 of you would have raised their hands. Most of you guys did. So we did the research, six-month research project. I led it. And we traced the genesis of these once extremist fringe talking points and how they went mainstream. Very quick. We found that about $43 million after the 9-11 terrorist attacks went primarily to think tanks in Washington, D.C. People like Frank Gaffney, Center for Security Policy, who said, quote, I'm not an expert on Sharia, but I do talk about it a lot as a threat. Let that shit sink in for a second. <laughs> and he gets paid $300,000. He has said in Sharia Threat to America, 2010 document that they wrote, that Islam is not religion, but Islam is a totalitarian ideology and Sharia is a legal, military, political doctrine that seeks to supplant the constitution with Islamic law. There are some good Muslims, but later on it says, do you know what Muslims do? Taqiyya. What's taqiyya? If you ask most Muslims, they think it's a tasty taco released by Taco Bell with guacamole. No one has any idea. Taqiyya sounds delicious. But in all seriousness, taqiyya, taqiyya that's a good delicious. ADL use that. But what's so insidious, you can never trust a Muslim. Because taqiyya is religiously mandated lying. God commands them, to, commands them to lie. What's the real agenda? To implement sharia. This was so out there that Frank Gaffney and Pamela Geller and Bridget Gabriel of the Act for America was excised by the Republicans, not invited to the CPAC conference from 2011 to like 2014. You guys with me so far? Now, without any exaggeration, all the people that we mentioned in Fear, Inc., the think tanks, the scholars, the grassroots groups who then disseminate this to evangelical megachurches, and the politicians, literally these people are now in the White House, and they counsel Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, Jeff Sessions, and the president. So much so that Frank Gaffney's data was used by Kellyanne Conway to actually rationalize the Muslim ban. So much so that Bridget Gabriel, the founder of the leading anti-Muslim hate group in America, Act for America, tweeted out a photo of her meeting in the White House. So much so that Steve Bannon, who says that we're under invasion, and the book that he recommends all Americans read is The Camp of the Saints, a 1970s racist book written in France where an Indian immigrant uh, who eats crap, literally he eats turd, and he has a blind prophet on his shoulder, leads an invasion of 80,000 brown hordes to Europe, and they take over. And Steve Bannon says, read that book. That's what we're suffering now in the Judeo-Christian West, an invasion. These people, who were so extreme in 2011 that even the Republicans said, okay, you have freedom of speech, but you're on the margin of the sidelines, are now counseling the president on his views on Islam. And the last thing I'll say, the big idea, is love has gone intersectional. We're going to talk about love, we should, uh, about the hopeful solutions. But another big Aspen idea, hate has also gone intersectional. And it's no longer just anti-Muslims. It's anti-Muslims, it's the undocumented, it's the blacks, it's the women, it's the gays. They are coming against us, us versus them. And ISIS, what's the lead? last thing I'll say? I'll stop talking, I promise. The reason why this is so important, 
It's the world is paying attention. ISIS's number one recruitment and propaganda is the following. The West is at war with Islam. Number one recruitment tool. And the President of the United States says, I think Islam hates us. Sorry, I'm done with my filibuster. Let, no can I order the let, let it never be said that Wajali is not tweetable. Um, I, I want to come back to this question of how we, how we actually meaningfully identify what, um, what hate speech is and, and what hate looks like in practice. Again, we have this sort of idea that all right-thinking people sort of feel a certain way about this type of thing, and we know it when we see it and what have you, but identifying what hate speech is and isn't, who is and isn't a hater, uh, is difficult. And Facebook's policy on this, as reported by ProPublica, is an illustration of this. Under the policy, ProPublica found that if you are talking about a protected class, um, the guidelines to the folks, the folks, the thousands of people who they pay to censor um, uh, hate speech, to remove hate speech from the platform, if you're saying hate, potentially hateful, derogatory things about a protected class, you know, race, religion, gender, what have you, um, then um, don't allow it, take it down. But if it's a not protected class, including like age, uh, for example, then um, it's fine. It, but you can, you can appreciate this challenge for a platform that now serves apparently two billion users. You can appreciate the challenge in trying to identify what is hate speech and what isn't, and how do we prevent genuine expression and worthy expression from being censored um, while protecting people from incitements to well, violence. Well, I can tell you how we're thinking about it from the ADL perspective. So we see cyberspace and social media as the front line in the fight against hate. Mm -hmm. And to your point, two billion users, a billion active monthly users on Facebook. Four, four and a half billion messages, point pieces of data exchanged every day on the platform. I mean, it's extraordinary. And we're not even talking about Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or any of the other platforms too. But we have certainly seen a pattern wherein minorities or people with these characteristics are targeted We've seen it against Jews. In fact, last year, concern about journalists who were perceived to be Jewish or were Jewish, like Julia Yaffe, who's here, and Hadas Gold, I think. Atlantic colleague. Uh, Jeff Goldberg, a number of others. We did some analysis just to see, is there really anti-Semitic um, harassment taking place on Twitter of these yes. journalists? So our study found over 12 months, uh, literally, uh, millions and millions of anti-Semitic messages, tens of thousands directed at a handful of Jewish journalists, including Jeff Goldberg, who made the top ten. Oh, there, there you go. There's something. There's something. <laughs> well done, Jeff. <laughs> but the trick is, as, I was, as you're alluding to, there's two things here. There's not just the content of the message, calling someone a mean name, because the alt-right and these kind of these folks who harass online, they're very adaptive. So after we released our report and identified this issue, suddenly they changed their approach. They started calling Jews Skypes. And they came up with other kind of weird euphemisms for Jews and Muslims and women and gays that they wanted to target to avoid the censors. So we're partnering now with Google, and we're working on a project using artificial intelligence to identify and, and neutralize these messages before they happen. So it may seem, well, how can you tell when someone says black teens should all be eradicated? Well, actually, you could look at who's writing that tweet. Does it say in their bio, for example, you know, white nationalist hates blacks or something like that? You could look in, and see who else is following them, other hateful racists. You could look and see when they tweet at you, 
So like I get messages all the time from people whose handles are like Thor Hammer of God, you know, <laughs> or Real Exposer of Jews. So chances are when someone tweets at me and their name is Thor Hammer of God, they're not my friend. <laughs> Thor is an anti-Semite. Can you tweet that? Can we tweet Thor? The Marvel people. Absolutely. The Marvel people will be all over me. People, no. Yeah. Um, or, but again, so you can see who are their, you can map this stuff, Matt. Who are their relationships? Yeah. Yeah. Have their tweets been, or their posts been flagged in the past? You know, there are ways we can figure this stuff out. Now, it may be imperfect, but we've got to use technology and innovation to tackle this problem because the law can't keep up. And Lord knows, no matter how many thousands of censors they hire up at Facebook, you know, these poor people in a call center in the Philippines will never be able to figure out what's really going on. I just, I wanted to say that First of all, there's no question it has to be an artificial intelligence answer. The volume, yeah. the massivity of it. I mean, in a way, the saddest thing about reading about the Facebook issue was not only they're completely confused in bizarre guidelines, but they're paying someone like $4 an hour to try to sort this out. Something that we're sitting here trying to figure out with all that we know about this world, right? I mean, this is really, really complicated. But we have to get a handle on it, because here's the reason why. Back in the 90s, before the World Wide Web, the internets, you know, people couldn't get access to this much ugly stuff in the way that happens now. That's right. I mean, people, you know, when I think of the internet, I think, you know, if, you, if I walk around downtown Aspen, the chances of me seeing somebody use the N-word or saying something horrible about Jews is very slim. I could even be in the most right-wing state in the country, right? But the illusion that people have when they get on the internet is like, there's no problem saying that the Jews should be gassed or you know, black people should be killed or are violent or whatever, because you're completely surrounded with this stuff, right? It, it, it's as though everyone around you is talking this way, and the stuff that you've been saying about Trump and the mainstreaming of hate is, is simply amplified by this new universe of interaction. And it's corrosive, it's horrific, it's awful. And you're right about the law. We're suing on behalf of a Jewish woman in uh, Montana who was trolled like Julie Ioffe and all these other people, her 12-year-old son got material saying he should be put into a, an oven, right? Holocaust references. Yeah, you do not want to be in Julia or Jeff's no, these mentions. Terrible. Um, probably several of y'all, y'all but, as a matter of fact. We're very popular online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the legal structure for harassment like this almost doesn't exist, yeah, totally. right? So there's no way to fight back. You could try to block people. You could try to do this. All of that won't solve the problem of young children getting on the internet and all of a sudden thinking, well, wow, this hate stuff is cool. It's got zippy memes to it. It's got this or that. I mean, it's, if we don't stop this process, it's so horrifically corrosive to the, uh, sort of the autonomy of so many individuals that it's frightening. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Today's featured speakers include Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Heidi Byrick, an expert on various forms of extremism, and Wajahat Ali. He co-hosted Al Jazeera America's news show, The Stream. Moderator Matt Thompson is with The Atlantic. Previously, he supervised teams of journalists at NPR covering race, ethnicity, and culture. Now back to the show. 
look, actually, my previous job, which I just left, we were working with Facebook and Google precisely on that. Uh, the reality is this. Social media is the weaponized spear of hate right now. Steve Bannon, in particular, has said that he wants to weaponize media and is exactly what he did with Breitbart. He's very clever when it comes to this. So are the alt-right, ISIS, and white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Do not underestimate their technological capabilities. Uh, when it comes to the Islamophobia industry that I mentioned that started up in 2000, well, really became popular in 2001 and after 2011, they are very good at using social media, search engine optimization, certain hashtags, certain search terms. So if you put in jihad or Quran or Islam, you will get their version popping up first in Google search. The important point is this, and this is a hopeful point, is that what we have seen through the research, whether it's the alt-right, the white supremacists, or anti-Muslim bigots, it is always a very small, interconnected, incestuous group of people who are very dedicated and committed to their hate. The problem is the most of us are what I call the flabby, moderate majority, right? It's good to have a kumbaya of 600 people, but if you have eight people who get up every day and are committed to a vision, they will be much more successful than 600 of us. The problem is the following. You can't stop them. Let me repeat this. You can't stop them. But you have to outpace them. You have to outstrategize them. You have to be smarter. What's failed so far? Top-down government approaches creating narratives that don't stick with authentic communities. Top-down approaches that do not take account the lived experiences of the communities they're trying to reach. Right. What you need is innovative solutions from the community members in a multicultural coalition of the willing. Techies, activists, students, public sector, nonprofit groups working together to come up with solutions that actually impact their communities. Narratives that stick. Why is ISIS and all rights so successful to their base? The narrative sticks. A narrative of empowerment. The government narrative, and I'll say why it's failed, it's, the government says, hey, Wajahat, fight ISIS. And I'm like, dude, my mom is wearing a sari, like making biryani right now, watching the Warriors. She does not want to fight ISIS. You know what I'm saying? If you give a narrative, an alternative narrative of empowerment, and you give them then the technological tools and train them how to use YouTube, how to use Facebook, how to use Snapchat, how to use Instagram, how to use Twitter to promote an authentic message and narrative with the right messenger, you win over the masses. Because right now, ISIS, the alt-right, white supremacy, they know their base, and they know how to use technology really well to amplify a hateful message that then gets mainstreamed and literally gets tweeted by the President of the United States of America. And I'll give you one example. He tweets a fake fact about black crime, and that statistic, which was whack, was conjured up by white supremacists. And it was just done through a tweet graphic. Sit with that for a moment. Um, who has the mic out in the audience? So thank you. Actually, um, you started, and I'm going to ask you to unpack. Amongst the many disturbing things that we talked about so far this morning, some of the most disturbing things for me is sort of the, um, this, the hate crimes um, that are happening on campuses. School ca um, mm. not only college campuses, but high schools, middle schools, yeah. elementary schools. And our teachers in those environments are ill-equipped to handle, manage the conversations that they generate. And so going back to sort of just as you started to talk about what could be done, where, what are the resources that are available for students? I work at University of North Carolina um, in Chapel Hill. What are the resources available for mm. students, for teachers, not only at the university level, because I actually think we have a little bit more there, but at the high school and going further down? 
Thank you very much. A good question. Heidi. Um, I know ADL has a ton of resources as well. At the Southern Poverty Law Center, we have a project called Teaching Tolerance that deals with the K through 12 cohort and mostly has materials written specifically for teachers. And we have put out a ton of material in the last, really since the election, about this problem and how to handle it. I encourage you to look at it. You know, one of the things that was most amazing about the election itself for us um, was that there were almost like 900 hate crimes in the 10 days after the election. And the largest chunk of them happened on school campuses, many of them involving, you know, like very, very young children. And so the, 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 this is a, quite a challenge for administrators and teachers to deal with. So I encourage you to look at the material. I know ADL yeah, has so, a ton of stuff. Uh, thank you, Heidi. And, and to build upon what Heidi said, I mean, we've thought this for decades. Like, the best antidote to ignorance is knowledge. Yeah. And the best way to challenge hate is not like, again, through top-down models, but through bottom-up strategies that engage people where they are. So the ADL over decades has developed some of the best educational materials for kids. We've got 27 offices around the country, and we use hundreds and hundreds of trainers who go into schools with a peer-to-peer model to empower high school students to mentor middle school students, to empower middle school students to mentor uh, elementary school students. And a lot of our stuff is online, and I'm happy to talk to you about it. It's at ADL.org. It is interesting, right? We can, we're opening up an office in Silicon Valley. That's important. But that doesn't help the teacher at a school as happened outside of Detroit, where this is building upon what Heidi said. Literally, this was on the news, and we got a call from the principal at that school, where kids, in, this was right after the election, kids in the cafeteria started chanting at the Hispanic kids. Mm. In the school cafeteria, this is a middle school, build the wall, yeah. build the wall. And we had stories about other, these, these, aren't, these aren't Mexican students. They just happen to have last names like Garcia, mm. right? These, are as, these kids are as American as anyone sitting in this room or anyone up here on this panel. And so what we've seen on the ground is really just so troubling. And that's why, again, I actually believe we can't legislate our way out of this problem. No. We need to change hearts and minds. I think, uh, so to turn to the part, I mean, I want us to really turn fully to the, the, the second half, half of the, the fr- premise for our conversation today and what can we do about it. Um, and I think uh, the, starting with the resources that are available from both the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ADL um, is a great place um, to, uh, to turn first in that conversation. But I want to I also ask the question, because another thing that we saw in our reporting on the immediate aftermath of the election is that in some classrooms, kids who... Um, had identified themselves as voting for President Trump yeah. um, were also silenced, shut down, and sometimes threatened in, in serious ways, too. And I'm really curious about this question of how do we protect, uh, how do we protect acts of speech? How do we keep from, uh, from tilting over into a liberalism in our response to these matters? I think um, earlier in the conversation, Jonathan, you had said, you used the phrase, we should not allow. And I'm curious what that means. What do we do with hateful speech messages? You know, look, it's, it's worth noting that neither, again, I don't really care how you vote, because neither side of the ideological spectrum is exempt from intolerance. True. And there have been some very notable high-profile stories in the last few months about in the interest of, if you will, liberalism, if you will, we've seen really terrible, you know, we've seen an unraveling of liberal democracy, specifically on college campuses. Where, where scholars and, 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 look, ugly speakers who I don't like, who I don't like, have been chased off of campus 
or physically threatened. That situation at Middlebury College with Charles Murray, again, I, I am hard-pressed to call him a scholar who's whose research I want to read. Nonetheless, the fact that this man had to be physically protected from a mob is not something any of us, not something that any of us should think is okay. Now, somebody here, maybe it was Jeff Rakes yesterday, talked about we don't need safe spaces, we need brave spaces. Mm. I think we need to have the confidence in our own, you know, in our young people to allow even, again, ugly points of view to be heard. The problem is that, or the challenge is that, and it's a challenge for which our teachers need to be prepared and as adults, we need to be sort of trained to be able to negotiate the line between when is it okay to present a challenging idea and when are you challenging somebody's right to be, to be heard, right, based on some immutable characteristic. So this is a little bit like Oliver Wendell Holmes. You know it when you see it, and it requires a degree of judgment, but it, judgment means opening yourself up in listening with, with earnestness, right, with real curiosity and not willing down to shut down other points of view. I really am, I want to, I want to talk, and I'm curious, uh, Wajan Heidi, about your, your perspective. I, earlier, recently, we saw um, a woman who was wearing a rainbow flag with the Star of David on it denied entrance to a, a pride march. Right. Um, it, there's a real way in which these forces can sort of like tilt back on themselves where anti-Semitic messages, for example, are um, coming from places where you might least expect them, places that you might have otherwise identified as safe. And how do you guard against that? Well, I mean, I think anti-Semitism on colleges is a real serious issue, right? And this is actually a liberalism coming largely from people on the left. The other issue that we have are people that are members of sort of these anti-fascist groups that have taken a lead role in shutting down these speakers, right? And they openly call from violence, and they're obviously anti-fascist. You know, they're from the left, right? So you can't neither side is exempted from crossing lines like that and things like anti-Semitism need to be called out whether it's from the right or the left it doesn't really matter right anti-Muslim thinking I mean this in a way they're um, they tend to mostly be expressed on the right but they're a little bit beyond politics aren't they I mean this is where you're simply dissing somebody for who they are for no reason. For being. For, for being, yeah, for being who, who they are. And so, you know, I don't think that that needs to be, that it's, you know, that there's any exemption on any side of the pol political sphere. On the other hand, um, like with Murray, that should have never happened. Richard Spencer, as abhorrent as I find him, should have, he's a white nationalist, should have been allowed to speak at Auburn, right? The point is we need to challenge the speech peacefully. That's right. We need to take on the arguments in a reasoned manner. We need to reject them, and not by smashing windows or punching Richard Spencer in the face, right? This is, um, frankly, it does the left no good to behave this way. It simply makes them look ridiculous. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you like today's show, please check out the episode, What Have We Learned from Listening to America? Journalists Joshua Johnson, Melissa Block, James Fallows, and Charles Sykes talk about a divided America. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts. Now back to today's episode. Here's Matt Thompson. So we are coming really close to the end of our time, and I want to go to questions in, again in a second. Um, but first, I want to have a really quick lightning round. I want to ask, in just like a minute, from each of you, 
what is one thing that should be done um, to prevent um, the rise of hateful extremism in America? And Heidi, I want to ask you to speak about that. What is one thing that we should do as a democracy, as a democratic civic society? Waj, as individuals? Um, Jonathan, as a pretty um, moneyed and influential uh, uh, tier of people in the audience today, um, what do we do as leaders? Heidi? It's hard to answer with one. This, this issue about the tech companies and speech there is critically important. I'll just, let me say two things. The issue of hate crimes is not taken seriously enough in this country. A lot of you saw probably the Department of Justice yesterday released a report saying there are 250,000 hate crimes a year. We only count about 5,000. So we're not even, we don't even have our handle on the kind of hate violence that's being experienced by Americans and, and that that can't continue. Wait, say one more thing about that because this is actually a really interesting point. Yeah, well, I mean, the point is, if there's 250,000 hate crimes a year, if we knew that, as opposed to the FBI's data, which shows about 5,500 a year, we would start thinking about hate violence as a critical problem in the United States. We'd put resources at it in the Department of Justice. We would train law enforcement aggressively. We would do things to protect the communities that are targeted, the minority communities, make it safe for people to come forward. It's often a terrifying thing to be the target of a hate crime because it affects your entire community, right? It's not just you. And we're not doing any of that. And, you know, I'm not even going to start to talk about Trump on hate crimes, but we're not doing any of that. And that's that's, it's simply unacceptable. I'll say as a journalist, the reporting on this is really difficult, in part because the counting is all over the place. Heidi, you, um, in our conversations, have mentioned that something like 12% of law enforcement agencies are even counting hate crimes. Goodness knows whether or not that's being done consistently. We don't even know, we don't even know what's happening, um, actually. So like, even getting a handle on the, the strength of the problem is one thing. Watch, as individuals, what is our responsibility? Uh, you need equal standards, not double standards equal standards, not double standards. You need to create a multicultural coalition of the willing. I'll say that again. You need to create a multicultural coalition of the willing in Avengers, where individuals carry each other's water. That means if you're a Jewish American, you stand up for Black Lives Matter. If you're African American, you stand up for the LGBT. If you're LGBT, you stand up for Muslims. If you're Muslims, you stand up for climate change and the rural white American who's on opioids because he can't get a job. You have to stick together. And I know that sounds air, air in the sky, like asking the idea, but the reason why it's so important is we go back to ISIS. What is ISIS banking on? And no one talks about this. They're banking on us creating self-inflicted wounds. They say Donald Trump is the biggest self-inflicted wound because they say that the veneer of religious liberty and freedoms and equality in America is just that, a veneer. You guys actually hate each other, and you're going to turn on each other when it comes to race and religion. So we have to inoculate ourselves against that. How do individuals do it? You have to become the protagonist of the narrative of the American dream that you want to see. You have to become that protagonist. And you underestimate yourself. Who am I? I'm a nobody. Well, you guys are Aspen people. You guys are not the gatekeepers. You guys created the gates. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'll give you an example. In North Carolina, what's changing lives? I'm a Muslim woman who wears the hijab in Aspen. I have never reached out to the synagogue. Hey, let me pick up the phone. Can I come talk to your synagogue? And vice versa. I've seen these pockets of resistance in so many cities that have created alliances. I'm not even making this up. Being a good human being on a day-to-day basis and living that narrative through your actions. The Muslim man dropped in January. My friend who knew me since elementary school and has not like talked to me in years, right? Connected with me on Facebook. Said, I've been following your writings and your life and your career and I have seen the rise of anti-Muslim hate. 
I never took it seriously, but now I am taking it seriously. Thank you for just speaking up and being the token Muslim in all boys Catholic high school for us. Because of that, I'm not gonna go to the airport with my girlfriend and resist this Donald Trump ban. And as gatekeepers, the final thing I say is this, representation, representation, representation. 65% of Americans say they don't know a Muslim even though we've been here for 400 years. Look at all the positions of influence and power, count how many women there are, people of color there are. Represent, use your resources to bring in the Latinos, the Muslims, the African Americans, the LGBT, and the women. You're not doing us a service. We've earned it, we're talented. Represent the America you wanna see. Sorry, it took more than a minute. I'll do this in less than a minute. So I'm proud of the fact that ADL helped get hate crimes laws passed in this country in the 90s. Good job. I'm proud of the fact that we educate a million and a half kids every year in schools. If you care about your children's college education, right, you invest in a 529 plan. And if you care, if you think Amazon is gonna keep growing and you care about your own financial livelihood, if you will, you go buy stocks. Right? You go buy shares in Amazon. So I would tell all of you, what can you, the moneyed classes you described here in Aspen, do? Buy shares in SPLC, buy shares in ADL, invest in the experts who are on the front line fighting for the future of your kids and your grandkids and trying to make sure that America remains the tolerant, vibrant, robust democracy it's always been. That's the best thing you can do. That's what you should do. Because that's the resource that you have that so few others do. And I, if you ask me, this is like investing in, this, is, this isn't bonds, if you will, but you can invest in the equity of these organizations and make a really big impact. Someone in the audience is about to ask the most brilliant question. Take it away, sir. The whole time I've been here, I've been hearing that where there's a problem, young people should be there. So what can us as young people that can't quite vote and do many things as adults can do, what can we do to limit these hate crimes and like stop what's going on. Thank you very much. What should the youths do? You should, you should interrupt intolerance when it happens. Right. You should speak yes. up when there's a situation in that cafeteria. You should show up when you hear about a kid that you don't know, maybe even one that you don't like is being bullied. And I think you should do what Waj talked about a few minutes ago, which is reach out to someone, to that girl wearing a hijab, or reach out to that kid in a wheelchair, or reach out to that young person who, you know, maybe is FOB, to use the term that Fresh off the did the other day. Like, be, be an ally. I, I think that's, and reach across lines, that's what matters most. Let me broaden the question, too. Both what can young individuals do, and also what can we do to support youth at this moment? Well, I mean, I think what Jonathan said is dead on. I mean, that is absolutely somebody, can do, somebody like you can do at any moment. You know, when it comes to the, you know, the world of sort of adults, we have a lot, lots of opportunities. You can invest in organizations like the ADL and support civil rights and, you know, support what we're doing at SPLC. But you also have the power to be there at the airport for those Muslim protests, right? You can be in the street supporting those Yemeni businessmen who refuse to comply with this kind of stuff. You know, we, we can stand up for women's rights. We can do a whole host of things write letters, all the standard stuff people tell you, to your congressman, et cetera. And you can make your personal life about this like Waj just talked about. And you know, I feel like at this moment, because we're in such a bad place, we have to be doing these things. If we want to reject 
the politics that are coming out of Washington right now from the Trump administration and whatnot. Mm. We have to stand together, like you said, the multicultural coalition of the, the willing. I mean, it, there is no option because these people don't want that world. And they're going to do everything in their power, whether it's through DOJ and non-enforcing civil rights or education or this, that, and the other thing, to not have a society that's equitable and respects civil rights. So we've got to do these things. Can I say, first, what we should do with the youth? Listen to them. Yes. Listen to the youth. And the second thing I'll say is the best event I've attended, and Jonathan and I were speaking there yesterday, was these Aspen Youth Scholars. Is that what you guys are called? It was like the most diverse, woke as F people on Aspen. And I was like, this is the best thing that Aspen's doing. Next year, you guys need to take it from 400 to 800. Invest and mentor in these youth. Nurture them, nurse them, give them scholarships, endowments, help them, make them interns. People from Philadelphia, Chicago, where else are the people from? New York. Like folks who you never see, Minnesota. No, I'm serious. Gatekeepers, what should we do? Take them under your wing. Take them under your wing. These are the future leaders of America. Invest in them and listen to them. As a journalist and as a gay black Catholic uh, immigrant. The most popular uh, man in America. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will add one thing, which is um, take uh, every room I enter, I'm an, I am an outsider in one way or another. Um, and I found it immensely valuable to be so um, because it's forced me always, wherever I am, to engage with perspectives and experiences that are not mine because mm. none of them are mine. My experience is only mine. I think one of the most valuable things that we can do as Americans, one of the most valuable things about this country is the incredible, incredible pluralism and diversity that is here, the, the, just, the sheer range of experiences that are possible in this place. And so strive to find experiences that are not your own and strive to understand them. I think that is incredibly powerful work and, and work that I think is among the highest part of the work that my team does at the Atlantic. This has been a tremendously rich conversation. I want to thank the amazing panel, Heidi Byrick, Raja Lee, Jonathan Green, Greenblatt. You have been a wonderful audience. Thank you so much for your time. Heidi Byrick leads the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which publishes the Intelligence Report and the Hate Watch blog. Jonathan Greenblatt served as director of the White House Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation under President Obama. Wajaha Ali writes for the New York Times and earned a Peabody nomination for his series, The Secret Life of Muslims. Matt Thompson is deputy editor of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen, Eliza Kostas, and me, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.